Welcome to the Trinity Western Chapel Podcast. As a vibrant part of life at Trinity Western University, Chapel creates opportunities for us to engage with God's story of redemption in Jesus Christ through His Word, prayer, and worship. We're glad you're listening and hope that you encounter God's heart for you and the world. Well, hello, friends. What an absolute joy to be with you and to talk about Esther, and particularly at Esther chapter 3. We're going to be here for three days, Esther chapter 3. And this is kind of fun in so many ways. I mean, this is the only chapter in Esther where a woman isn't present. So if we could subtitle this, I think it might be Men Behaving Badly. And uh, actually, that could be a subtitle of a lot of history, couldn't it? <laughs> but here we are in a book that is a beautiful story, a story of redemption and a story of God's ultimate plan and purpose, which is to save and to redeem. Uh, and not only that, but also the way in which God saves and redeems um, is such a beautiful thing. So here we are in Esther chapter 3, and you'll know the story so far, but I want to catch you up just in case you've forgotten. Um, Esther is really Hadassah who is a Jewish girl. I don't know how you heard about Esther when you were a kid. When I was a kid in Sunday school, Esther was always a beauty queen uh, who was chosen because of her beauty and then used her power to save the Jews. Uh, Upon further reflection as an adult, and particularly a justice advocate for women who've been sexually exploited uh, for many, many years, Esther is a sex trafficking victim. There's absolutely no doubt about it, who has been stripped of her autonomy, uh, her dignity, her human value. Uh, She's hiding. Uh, Mordecai, her um, cousin who has raised her as a daughter, she's orphaned. Um, She literally is the most powerless person in the story, Esther. So this is what's so cool about the the word of God, by the way, is that, you know, even the book is called Esther. This is about Esther and about Esther's power and privilege and what she does as the hero of the story. But in all, like, like, Seriously, there is no person in a story that has been more ridiculously hidden or has less autonomy than the person with Esther. This is a victim of oppression and misogyny and patriarchy and power and sex abuse who is uh, literally Esther in its Hebrew origin, the word itself, even though it's a Persian name that she takes on, the name means hidden, hidden. And Esther is kind of hiding in the background of this story for most of the time. Mordecai, again, a powerless man in many ways. He goes to the temple courts. He's pacing back and forth. He goes to the gates of the king's house where Esther is, tries to talk to her as much as he can. But you can feel sort of the powerlessness of Mordecai and Esther in the story. And this is God's great kingdom advance, is that this is the great... Uh, kingdom agenda in so many ways is that God can use anybody anytime. uh, And this is the great invitation for all of us. But he takes particular delight, it seems to me, according to the scriptures, in choosing, you know, in, in the hidden ones, in choosing the people in the story who are not at the center, they're at the margins of the text. The people who lack power, God loves to empower. The people who are invisible, God sees. And this is true right from the beginning of Genesis, you know, when you you hear about the story of Hagar, who literally names God the God who sees me. And God is doing this all through history, all through the scriptures. He's seen the invisible people. You remember when the prophet went to anoint David, uh, went to, to, to anoint David and went to his household, and David wasn't even in the list of sons. You know, he wasn't the tall one or the strong one or the eldest one or all the expected ones until the prophet says, don't you have another son somewhere? And they're like, oh yeah, they're run to the litter, but he's out taking care of the sheep. And the prophet's like, yeah, that's the one. It, God takes special delight 
you know, and even in the New Testament, when you think through like Jesus is coming into the world, who's going to change everything for everyone in every way. This is the greatest honor to ever bestow, you know, all of humanity is God incarnate, you know, like God making himself one of us. And, uh, and he chooses a teenage girl in an oppressed people group. <laughs> We're talking about an oppressed person in an oppressed people group. And this is who he chooses, the hidden ones. And uh, this is where God is most at work and uh, most, uh, well, choosing those people, those invisible people. So I don't know, maybe you feel invisible or maybe you know people who are at the margins of the story, who feel like there's nothing they can do, who feel absolutely powerless, who feel like their autonomy even is taken. And they literally wonder like, what on earth could I offer? What on earth can I do? All I'm trying to do is survive here. Uh, and there is this agenda. And I think one of the things about Esther three is God having this hidden agenda, this surprise kingdom power reversal. And of course, God's power is always used to save. This is what God's power is for, to redeem and to save and to forgive and to empower other people. Uh, this is always the power of God. And then you have the power of man or the power of worldly systems or the power, even demonic power or the power of uh, structures and empire. And that power is always used to oppress and to push down and to subjugate people and to make people invisible. And all through Esther, you see this revelation of what kind of power, this sort of story of power. The other thing that's interesting about Esther, of course, is God is not named in Esther. It's one of the books where um, there's no mention of God, except you can see God's work, God at work in people and in saving and in redeeming and in elevating and in empowering people all throughout the story. So God is present in Esther, but not named. That's also fascinating. So let's dive in just for the first six verses here. Um, but before we do that, I remember uh, a time in my own life. So I don't know what your redemption story is. My redemption story is that I was uh, a juvenile delinquent. I was a drug addict. I was in a holding cell when I actually had an encounter with Jesus through a very unlikely uh, Salvation Army visitor to my cell. And I encountered Jesus in such a powerful way that I realized that God was for me, that he saw me, the, the real me, not the distressing disguise I had on, um, but through my addiction, through my pain, through my self-loathing, through my rebellion. And he saw who I really was and he loved me. And that began this transformation journey for me, but it was a really hard transformation journey. And I know sometimes like in Walt Disney fashion, you know, we, we were like, ta-da, I met Jesus. And then everything worked out for me. And I guess ultimately when you skip ahead to the story now, it seems to have worked out just fine. But I remember probably for about uh, three years, almost right after my conversion, there was probation, there was drug treatment. And then there was a season after I got through treatment that I was too good for the bad kids, for sure. I, I had no friends. I had to crash. I had to burn that sort of bridge to prevent myself from going back. But then I also was still too shady for the good kids. And so I really was all by myself. I felt completely alone. And um, I remember one of these nights just feeling completely alone. I lived near Young Street in Toronto, just a strip that was very familiar to me as a kid. And I knew exactly where I could go to score. And that's what I wanted to do. I remember leaving, just I'm like, I'm going for a walk. And I remember walking up Young Street and just thinking to myself, you know, I don't think I can do this. 
like, I don't think I have the capacity to do this. I don't want to do this. Like this life I thought was going to be good. And it feels just really, really hard. And I remember walking up the street and there was, uh, in those days, uh, a Salvation Army church, which is where I was from, the tradition of the Salvation Army. And they had a night meeting, a Sunday night meeting. And I remember hearing this meeting going on just off of Young Street. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to sit in the back row for a couple minutes and then I'm going to just get out of here. Just sort of a last ditch effort to try to like, I don't know, something drew me in there. So I went into the meeting and I sat in the back row and literally I just slipped in the back and the meeting's going on and they're in the middle of what we used to call a testimony period or a testimony time where anybody can just stand up in the congregation and thank God or tell a story of how God was impacting their life this week. And I was sitting there for like a second and this woman stands up, this old blind Salvation Army officer stands up and she said, I have to give God praise tonight because I heard that a young girl I've been praying for for many years because I promised her mother I would pray for her. I've heard that she met Jesus and she's gone to treatment and I just feel led to ask everybody here to pray for her right now that she would know that God's with her, that she's not alone. <laughs> I'm like, and then she said, her name is Danielle. Let's pray. And I am literally sitting in the back of it. She's blind. This is not an agenda. This is not like manipulation. This is God saying, I'm at work. I'm at work even when it feels like I'm not, even when it feels like you're alone, even when it feels like this is too much for you. I know you by name. I've got you. You're mine. So as I approach this Esther story, you know, and in the middle of this story, we're going to enter into a plot twist. And this plot twist is going to turn the tension up on this idea that bad guys win and good guys get messed around with over and over and over again. And it's going to conjure up all these ideas of powerlessness and just like, what's the point and like, what is going on anyway? And I want to, to remind you, powerfully if I can, that God is always at work. Whether we feel like it or see the evidence of that or not, we get glimpses every now and then. And a glimpse is going to come in the, in, in the book of Esther, of course, in the end. But even when we don't see the glimpse, we can trust that God is hidden sometimes, but working behind the scenes, arranging things in such a way to remind us that he saves and that he can save. So Esther 3, let me read to you verses 1 to 6. After these events, King Xerxes, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. And therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So again, after these events, that's verse 1 of chapter 3, in these events, 
are this, uh, this thing that happened where Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king and he intervenes. And he tells Esther, tell the king they're going to try to kill him. Esther tells the king, there's a plot to kill you. And my, you know, Mordecai is the one who told me about this plot. So when you're hearing this story, you're like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be the way that Mordecai is going to save Esther and going to save the people. Like, this is the way, like, this is, this is the way that it's going to happen. Right. And then literally it says like, after that, the king promotes Haman, who's like kind of the bad guy. As a matter of fact, if you were reading this story in uh, the Purim, Purim celebration with Jews, so if Jews were reading the story, every time the name Haman is mentioned, they hiss and boo. Doesn't that sound like a more interesting chapel? <laughs> so every time we say the word Haman from here on in, you have my permission to hiss and to boo like a, a Jew that would be reading this scripture. Okay. So just so that it's clear, like this is the bad guy. So Mordecai has done something to save the king's life and Haman is the one that benefits from it. <laughs> and so in the story, you're just like, what? Like that doesn't even make any sense in the story. The only way that this makes sense, of course, is in the larger story. And I think for me, there's a really big principle at work in the best in the book of Esther. And we talked about the hidden nature of God, about how God is always at work. But also in the very beginning, I mentioned this idea that God is looking for the most unlikely of heroes. God is always looking for those people, this upside down kingdom, or what I call the right side up way of living, uh, where Jesus said it like this in the Beatitudes, like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or those who are mourning, or those who are meek, or those who are hungering and thirsting after justice and righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of God. They're, they'll see God. They're the children of God. So there's this real sense in which I think in the larger narrative of Esther and then the larger meta narrative of the scriptures, God's holding out for a hero. <laughs> God's holding out for a hero to the end of the night. That's Dady B, but it's a good song. I think Footloose for some biblical references. Footloose, go ahead. Um, anyway, he's holding out for a hero. And in the story, it just makes sense it's going to be Mordecai. But Mordecai isn't as powerless as Esther, right? Mordecai is still in a patriarchal, misogynistic culture. Mordecai is still a man with some authority. And even though he's part of the Jewish group, he's still part of the honored uh, men of Persia. He stayed there. He could have gone back to Judah with the rest of the Jews, but he chose to stay in Persia. So he's part of this system. And, uh, and he saves the king's life expecting the honor and the honor is in him. It goes to the wrong guy. And of course, this sets up more and more and more attention because like who is going to help in this situation that seems absolutely helpless. And the tension just keeps rising and rising in the text. I hope you're hearing it because now it's not even just an animosity between Mordecai and Haman. Now the rat it was ratcheted up all the way to this annihilation of the Jews. Now this is about a whole people group being wiped out that escalated quickly. <laughs> And God is setting up the story so that the tension is there so that the hero actually can be revealed. So this hidden thing can be revealed. And this is what God's doing in the world, looking for a hero all the time, looking for those people who are the most unlikely people, but are the ones that are going to rise to the occasion. Uh, next, uh, uh, the next chapel, I'm going to share a little bit about some thoughts around why Mordecai refuses to bow uh, to Haman. And I think it might be more complicated than we think. Um, again, the Sunday school idea of the book of Esther, you know, of a queen and a beauty and like all those feminine qualities that kind of mark Esther as a special person instead of this oppressed person who was sex trafficked and completely sexually abused 
and uh, hidden, uh, had to forsake who she really was, her name, her culture, and the fortitude of a woman to be able to do that. She really passed off, she, she disguised her Jewishness and uh, was a Persian uh, queen. She's a Persian queen as a Jew. So, I mean, she passed this test. She was completely hidden. And uh, God uh, has his eyes on her, the God who sees us for who we really are, and then invites us to partner with him in his work of saving and redemption for the world. This is the beautiful hidden agenda of God that's at work within the text of Esther, and that is at work within uh, this, even this animosity that's happening, even this refusal that Mordecai has to bow. And uh, as their relationship, Haman and Mordecai's relationship escalates in uh, tomorrow, the next chap chapel, I want to talk a little bit more about that animosity between those two groups and how if we foster animosity between these groups, we actually end up fueling destruction and power and anger and violence. And that's what comes out of resentment and maybe even generations of narratives that we've told ourselves. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that uh, in the next chapel. But just for this chapel, please know that God has an agenda of salvation. He has an agenda of um, redemption for everyone, for everyone. And the way that he does this is in the most unlikely of people and in the most hidden possible ways. So if you're struggling, especially in these days, and you're wondering, like, am I even noticed? Am I hidden? Am I stuck? Am I, is this story unfolding and it's just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, and there's nothing that we can do to intervene, nothing that we can do to save uh, people, to save even ourselves, to save our own people? Are we really helpless and powerless and invisible in this world? And the answer, of course, is no, no. God sees you. God sees you. He knows you. Even if you feel powerless, he sees you and knows you and wants to partner with you in bringing salvation and redemption to the world. This is the good news of the gospel. Even at work in the Old Testament through the story, we hear and we sense and we feel God's agenda of salvation at work. I'm going to pray for you. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for including us in the great story of your redemption. It's not too late and it's not too hard for you. Uh, you have hidden people everywhere. <laughs> and I just pray right now for my friends, all of them, the ones particularly who feel the most hidden and the most invisible right now, would you remind them that you know their names, that they are not alone, that you have a plan for them and want to partner with them in bringing your salvation to people all over the world, other oppressed people who need good news and who need saving. Would you help us to be that kind of partner with you, to see with kingdom eyes your hidden people everywhere and to know that we're part of that, that we're part of that hidden kingdom agenda. Reveal your ways to us in Jesus' good name. We pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you are blessed and be encouraged in your faith life. Chapel happens every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 11 a.m. in the gymnasium or online at livechapel.twu.ca. You can also stay connected with us by following at TWChapel. Until next time, much love.